0: Lord, it's so good to rem- remind ourselves this morning that you are God and we are not. That you are God and we are not. That we don't bear the burden, the responsibility of upholding this world. We don't have the ability, God, to change our own hearts. And that's why we cry out to you, Lord, asking that you would transform us. That you would change us from the inside out. Lord, this morning that you would use your word to shape us and mold us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we know there are so many things that pull at our hearts. There are so many things that create that divided heart in us where, yeah, maybe part part of us is going towards you, but then there's part of us that's going towards something else. And and so, Lord, this morning, we just want to lay all of that at your feet. Lord, the anxieties, the worries, the fears that divide our heart, we lay those at your feet. Lord, even our guilt and our sin, that that we sometimes think means we have to keep distance from you. Lord, this morning we laid at your feet believing that you're the only one who can justify us. You're the only one who can forgive us. And Lord, the idols of our heart, the idols of this world, the things that that you made that are good things but that we take and try to worship them as as gods. Lord, this morning we say we we don't want to be worshiping idols. We don't want to be bowing down to anything else but you. So this morning, we lay our idols down at your feet. Lord, help us to know how to live in this world where you are our everything, where you actually do get the best of our hearts, you get the best of our lives, you get the best of our energy and our time and our our whole life, Lord. We want to be drawn in to a world in, in which you hold our hearts. And so as we turn to your word today, Lord God, we pray that you would use it We are humbled, God, that you have spoken to us. We confess together that what we need this morning is not a word from man. What we need is not for us to collectively get together and figure out what our best opinions are. Lord God, what we need is for you to speak to us. And so as you speak, we ask that you would give us a soft heart that is ready to receive whatever you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. As you're taking a seat, first I want to invite our kids to head to the back, uh, to the lobby. If you haven't checked in yet, you can still check in in the lobby uh, at this time. And then uh, for everybody else, I want to invite you to take your Bible out and open to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Uh, We heard Psalm 119, 129 to 152 read uh, out loud, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Psalm 119, verses 129. 152. Uh, at our house, we've been having this ongoing conversation uh, about how to get shade in our backyard in an economical way. Uh, so, you know, we live in one of those neighborhoods, one of those houses where there's really not many trees. And so, you know, all summer long, the sun has just been beating down uh, on, our, on our deck out back. And so, you know, it's kind of it's not really enjoyable to go out there when it's so hot. And, and so we, uh, we bought one of these big umbrellas. Uh, that was our first attempt, first stab at trying to get some shade in an economical way. And I uh, went out and I bought one of those like, you know, heavy duty industrial grade bases that is like, you know, as heavy as my car. And uh, I got that thing and, and put the umbrella in. And so <clears throat> it, was a, it was a huge surprise to me uh, when I came home uh, a few weeks ago and Allie told me that the umbrella that we had bought was on top of the house. Uh, it wasn't what I was expecting. Now, listen, the, the, base that, the base that I bought, the heavy-duty industrial-grade base that I bought, it's not going anywhere, right? It's not going to move. That thing is, is going to be right where it, it was left, no matter what happens. But see, the, the problem is that there is such thing as user error. Uh, where the person does not latch the umbrella properly to that, that base. And so when the wind comes, the base is not going anywhere. The, 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 the thing on the ground is heavy, it's 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 immovable. But if you don't latch it properly, it's not gonna work. You're gonna come home and, and Myrtle Beach anyways, you're gonna have an umbrella on top of your house. As we as we've been working through Psalm 119, here's what we've been seeing. We've been seeing that God's word is this steadfast and immovable anchor. God's word flows out of God's eternal heart and, and it's not going anywhere. So the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, have we latched ourselves to it? Have we said, no matter what comes our way, no matter what happens to us in life, we are going to cling to God's word with everything that we have in us. Uh, we are going to stick the roots of our convictions down into that, that which is immovable, that which is steadfast, that which will stand throughout, throughout history. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about a particular pressure that we all face, a particular kind of storm, a particular kind of wind, you might say, that we all face, and it is what the Bible calls the world, the world. Now, uh, one of the mistakes we can make when we're talking about the world is is to think that when the Bible talks about the world, that what it's talking about is like, you know. uh, the clothes we wear or the food we eat or the stuff the, that we enjoy, the sports that we play and that sort of thing. That's, that's one mistake that we can make. Uh, another mistake we can make is to think that, that, that the world is, is synonymous with materialism, you know, having things like cars and houses and money and, and that sort of thing. Uh, we can even make the mistake of thinking that, that the world are, are those institutions and people out there who, who don't believe God exists or, or something like that. But what we see throughout the Bible is that the world is actually uh, something much more simple than that. That the way the Bible describes the world is simply this, it is the pattern of life that is contrary to God's design. It is the pattern of life that is contrary to God's design. And that means you can be rich and you can be poor and you can be of the world. It means you can have a lot and you can have nothing and you can be of the world. You can be really religious or you could never go to church in your whole life, but you could be Of the world, because the world is simply the pattern of light that is contrary to God's design. As we approach this section of Psalm 119, we're going to see three stanzas, and in each of these stanzas, there's a verse that kind of encapsulates what what the Bible means when it talks about the world. If you've got your Bible there, first, uh, in verse 136, he says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 139 says, My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. And verse 150 says, They draw near who persecute me without, with, with evil purpose. They are far from your law. Each of these verses describes people who are not walking according to God's design. They are stuck in a pattern of life that is contrary to God's design. And that is what we talk about when we talk about the world. So the question that you and I have to ask this morning is we know we live in a time and a place when the world is crashing in on us, when the world caves in on us, when the pressure to conform to some pattern of life that is not according to God's design is all around us. And so what we have to ask is how will we stand up under that pressure? How will we keep from just getting swept away by the winds of this world? And I think what we're going to see as we work through these three stanzas is that the answer is, is that we must establish deep-rooted convictions that are tied to God's immovable Word. That's the only way. That's the only way forward in the midst of the pressures uh, that we face. Uh, when we talk about convictions, we're going to be talking about convictions throughout the sermon. <clears throat> when we talk about convictions, we're not talking about that feeling you have when you're guilty. You know when you're, you know, when you're like convicted of a crime? Uh, that's one way we use the word conviction or convicted. But today we're talking about convictions. In other words, your, your deep, deeply held beliefs those deep beliefs that end up guiding your life. And what we're saying is that the only way to withstand the pressures of this world is to have deep-rooted convictions, deep, deeply held beliefs that are connected to and rooted in the Word of God. So here are five convictions that we must establish if we're going to walk in God's design rather than getting swept up into the way of the world. Five convictions that we must establish. Conviction number one, God's Word is life. God's Word is life. Uh, Verse verse 129, at the the beginning of the first stanza that we're going to look at, starts this morning by saying, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Um, I, I don't know what you think is the most wonderful thing in the world. I don't know what you think is one of the most amazing things in the world. But I'll tell you what. At least one of, if not the most wonderful thing in the world, is this Bible that we have. Uh, to consider how this came together, to consider that there were uh, at least 60 or 70 authors who over a couple thousand years all were able to write a coherent story about the world and which matched and which tells us about who a, the great and glorious God is, about where we came from about how we can be saved from the fires of hell, about God's gracious plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. You you have a book. We have a book. There's a rack of books back there, an actual book, that will lead us to eternal life with God forever. Could you think of something that wonderful? Could you think of something that can compare? And so what we're going to see as we work through this first stanza is um, the reasons why the psalmist sees God's word is wonderful. Verse 130, he says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Uh, I don't know when the last time you went to a T-ball game was, <clears throat> uh, but every T-ball game that has ever existed in the history of the world has always been a mess. Uh, you may have a child on your kid's team who is the biggest and the strongest kid, and you know, he comes up to he comes up to the plate and you know the pitch comes in and he you know he smashes that thing. Uh, over the heads of all, all the players. But then all of a sudden, instead of running to first, he takes off running with all of his energy towards third base. And then you, you have a, a kid who gets, uh, you know, gets on first, he gets a hit, he's standing on first, and his friend, you know, Johnny or whatever, hits the ball, and instead of running to second like he's supposed to, he jumps off a of first base and runs in to field the ball as if he's the second baseman. You know, T-ball games are, are just an absolute mess. Well, that's kind of how I imagine us when we try to live life without God's Word. You know, we're smart. We have gifts. We have talents. But without the word of God, we go fast in the wrong directions. Without the word of God, we think we're doing great. We think we're living this awesome life. We think we have all this to boast about. But in reality, if we don't have the light of God's word shining into our life, we're going to be going nowhere in the wrong direction fast. The psalmist is saying, God, your your word is wonderful because it It shows me reality. It orients me to the reality of the way life is meant to be lived. It keeps me from just running reckless all over the place. You know, I imagine if we could sort of watch the world from God's perspective, it would look a lot lot like watching four- and five-year-olds play t-ball. People thinking they know what they're doing, following following their instincts, but headed in the wrong direction. And that's why verse 131, uh, he says... I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. See, when we come to the point when we realize how precious God's word is, when we realize that we can't understand reality without his word, we get hungry for it. We pant for it. We thirst for it. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew recounts the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan. And at this point in the story, Jesus, the, the man Jesus Christ has not eaten for 40 days. And so he is hungry. He's hungry as if you would be hungry, just like any other person would be hungry after not eating for that long. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, this is what it says. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus was really hungry. He really, really was hungry, just like any human would be. But Jesus knew in that moment that as important as food is, as important as water is, as important as it is to have sustenance for our body, there's nothing that can compare to what we receive from the word of God. And if Jesus, who, by the way, was sinless, knew that his food for life was God's word, how much more do we need the word of God to live our lives? And I think the the psalmist understood this, and that's why he goes on to say in, in 133 and 134, he prays, turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. See, there's something that makes the pressure of this world, the pressure of the, the pattern of life that is contrary to God's design, there's something about it that is really scary. And it is the fact that as long as we are alive in this world, the world, that pattern of life that is contrary to God's design, it will always have a friend inside of us. There will be, always be something in us that wants to do the wrong thing, that wants to conform to the wrong pattern. Uh, if you're here this morning today and, and you know you're, that you're not a Christian, you know that you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, you haven't been born again, God's Spirit hasn't come to dwell in you, uh, the, the way the Bible describes you is, is the Bible says that you are dead in your sins. And that means you are a slave to sin. That means you can't help but do the wrong thing. You could try and try and try and try, but you will always live conformed to the pattern of this world. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you say, I have put my faith in Jesus. I have been born again. You still have to deal, wrestle with, fight with indwelling sin. That for the rest of your life, as long as you are alive on, on this side of the grave, you will have indwelling sin in you. And that means there is something in you that wants to do the wrong thing. There is something in you that is a friend towards that pattern of life that is contrary To God's design, I have a uh, distant relative who is an undercover detective. His job is to uh, go in and cozy up, buddy up with criminals. You know, and the idea is you've got these two groups, right? You got you got the police on one side, you got the criminals on the other side, and and the police they know that if they can get someone on the inside, it'll be a lot easier to know what's going on. It'll be a lot easier to take that group down if they can get someone in on the inside. And what we have to realize, what we have to wake up to the fact is that there is something inside of us that would love more than anything else to team up with that enemy called the world and to draw us and conform us away from God's design and and to the pattern of life that's contrary to God's design. And that's why we have to set down this conviction that God's word is life because there's nothing that can kill the indwelling sin in us other than the word of God. There's nothing that can choke out the indwelling sin in our hearts other than God's Word. And so God's Word, we must approach God's Word as desperately as we approach our meals. The same way we get desperate for lunch, desperate for dinner, desperate for sustenance. That ought to be how desperate we are for God's Word. Because it's the only way that we can fight the indwelling sin that clings so closely. The Puritan John Owen said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And the only way we kill our sin is to draw our life from the Word of God. The second conviction, number two this morning, conviction number two, lawlessness is heartbreaking. Lawlessness is heartbreaking. (laughs) Verses 134 through 136 say, Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So here we have we have the psalmist we have this guy who's who's hungry for God's word. He wants his life to be aligned to God's word. He's not wanting sin to get any foothold in his life, but as he looks out to the world around him what he sees is people who break God's law. And as he sees people who break God's law, it breaks his heart. Uh, Here's my concern. My concern is that instead of having hearts that are broken over sin, we typically just laugh at sin. We typically minimize its seriousness. At, At worst, we even entertain ourselves with sin. The things that God disdains, we we somehow make a way of glamorizing it. That heart of rebelliousness, that sense of lawlessness that ought to break our heart. Instead, we cozy up to it. We find a friend with it. Uh, Now I want to be clear uh, what I'm not saying. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that we need to go on a witch hunt, you know, for anything that's not explicitly Christian. I'm just, I'm just asking the question, what is our attitude towards sin? What is our attitude towards law-breaking? Do we actually s- see the sinfulness of sin? Do we actually see the misery of life apart from God? So, what is it that should create this brokenheartedness? What is, what's breaking the psalmist's heart as he looks out at the lawlessness around him? Uh, well, first and foremost, The reason our hearts ought to break is because it is a belittling of the glory of God. That to break God's law is to push God off to the side. To break God's law is to shove God out to the margins of life. To break God's law is to dishonor God. And that, for those who love God, for those who love His Word, that ought to break our hearts. You know how it is with somebody in your life. You know, if a family member of yours has somebody that does something against them, if if your child has some injustice done against them, if your friend has some crime committed against them, you care about that. You know, you, you feel personally invested in that because you love them, you care about them, and you don't want anyone to do something against them. And the psalmist is simply saying, if God is our God, if He is the one we love, if He is the one who has our hearts, then when people don't submit to His law, when people don't follow His ways, when people belittle His glory... It ought to break our hearts. But in addition to God's glory, we should be heartbroken over sin because we have compassion. We have compassion. You know, I'm not saying that we don't hold people accountable, right? I'm not saying that we don't pursue justice for crimes when people commit them. But anytime we look out and we see people walking in sin, people living a lawless life, What we ought to remember is that this person was made by God. This person was made for so much more. This person was made to have life. And they're walking in darkness. They are a slave to sin and Satan. And that ought to break our hearts. And then I think even beyond this, there should just be a general brokenheartedness over how lawlessness and sin creates dysfunction in this world. You know, I think the tears of of Psalm 119, I I don't think these are self-righteous tears. I I don't think the psalmist is saying, look, you know, I'm on the good side and everybody else is on the bad side. And so I'm just crying here because, you know, everybody else just needs to get their act together. I I don't think that's what's happening. I I think he's brokenhearted, yes, because of God's glory being belittled. Yes, because he has compassion on other people. But also because sin in the world, lawlessness in the world means that this world is not how God originally intended it for, for it to be. There is a brokenness and a dysfunction that we all have to deal with because of sin in this world. And that means if we are going to appropriately respond to sin, if we are appropriately going to respond to lawlessness, if we are appropriately going to respond to the world around us, then we also have to grieve over our own sin. Because this pattern of life that runs contrary to the world, this pattern of life that is contrary to God's design, we have actually been a part of creating that. And so, just as broken as we are over what we see in the world around us, we have to get broken over our own sin. This is why Jesus said, Blessed, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And so, let's set down this conviction this morning that sin is not fun, sin is not entertaining, sin is not something to be taken lightly, sin is not something to be glamorized. And that lawlessness, lawlessness is not endearing. Rebelliousness is not a good quality in a leader. That we ought to be heartbroken, heartbroken over whatever God hates, whatever God disdains. Conviction number three this morning, third, God's ways are right. God's ways are right. Uh, In this next stanza, so we're going to cover stanza number two. In this next stanza, the word righteous or right appears six times. You you almost kind of stumble over it as you're just reading through these these verses. Uh, Verses 137 and 138 say, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules, for you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Verse 42 says, Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. And verse 144 says, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. God's rules, God's commandments, God's ways, they always reflect who He is. And if God is righteous, then that means His ways are righteous. His rules are righteous. His commands are righteous. His word is righteous. And so what that means is that when you and I think that we're smarter, when you and I go a different way, when you and I choose something other than God's ways, we are being utterly foolish. When we choose a different way other than what, what God, has, God has said, we are going against the one who is infinitely wise. We are going against the one who designed us. A few weeks ago, uh, one of my buddies needed to be picked up uh, or dropped off. I can't remember. His car was going, needed to be in the shop. And, you know, we pull in, and, you know, it's like all, all the other car shops. Are, you know, there's dozens and dozens of cars out front that are in the queue to, 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 to be worked on and fixed on. And um, on my way out of the parking lot, I looked over to my left, and there's this big truck, a uh, big, big huge truck, and it has these, in big block letters, written on the front windshield, uh, uh, the driver's side uh, mirror, I mean, me, the driver's side window, that's what I'm trying to say, of the car. And it says, do not start this car. Now, my assumption with that is that somebody put the wrong fuel in that that tank. And if your car is designed to run on regular gas, but you put diesel in in the car, then to turn it on and to try to drive with it, to try to ride around town with it, is going to break the car down. That that car was designed for a certain purpose. It was designed to run in a certain way. And so to take it and try to do something else with it, to take it and try to run it on a different fuel will only cause more dysfunction. And so what the psalmist is acknowledging is he's saying, God, you're the one who made me. You're the one who designed me. And so you are always right. You know better than I do what my, what my life ought to, how my life ought to work. And if I try to run opposite of your way, if I try to go my own way, it's only going to lead to more and more and more dysfunction. We have to settle in our hearts that no matter what we see around us, So no matter what we see going on in other people's lives, and no no matter what we even feel instinctively, that God's way is always right. And so here's what this means. When this world tells us to boast in ourselves and to push ourselves ahead so that we can get more in this life, in that moment, we have to decide, do I believe that God's ways are always right or not? Uh, When this world, for example, tells tells a, a, a young couple... That they ought to move in together before they get married so they can find out if they're compatible with one another. In that moment we find out, is God the eternally wise God who actually knows what's really right? Or am I going to go my own way and follow my own instincts and wisdom? When this world pushes us to get even with people who offend us, by gossiping about them or spreading lies about them or turning the cold shoulder to them. In those moments, we find out, are we going to believe that God's ways are right or or not? When this world tells us that the definition of love is wholesale acceptance and approval of anyone's decisions, whatever they are, in that moment, we find out, are we going to believe that God's ways are always right or, or not? When this world tells us to be unforgiving towards people who disagree with us, to be merciless towards people who make mistakes, we find out in those moments, are we going to believe that God's ways are always right or not? When this world tells us that it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as what you believe makes you happy, we find out in those moments whether we're going to say, no, 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 God's ways are always right. It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what I see around me. That's not what drives what is right and wrong. This world will tell us that the way we determine what right and wrong is is by asking ourselves, in my opinion, can I see how this decision is going to affect anybody else? And if I can determine in my, in my own opinion that this decision isn't harming or hurting anybody else, then I should be able to do it. This world leads us to determine what right, is wrong, what right and wrong are by, by, by something like this. By saying, well, I'm just playing by the same rules as everybody else. So yeah, maybe I'm fudging in my business, but everybody else fudges in their business in the same way. So it must be right, right? This world will tell us that we ought to treat other people in ways that the Bible tells us not to. And it will say, but guess what, guys? That person deserves to be treated that way. And these excuses fill our hearts, fill our minds, and we're tempted away from believing that that God's ways are right. But but here's the deal. Whenever we move away from God's ways, whenever we decide, no, 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 I'm going to do it this way. What we're basically doing is we're looking at God and we're saying, I don't really think you're very good at your job. We're looking at God and saying, I don't really believe that you designed me and you made me and you actually know what's best for me. No, see, if we are going to get to the point where we cling to God's Word, where we anchor our lives into God's Word, we have to get to the point where we acknowledge that there just might actually be a chance in the universe that God is smarter than we are. That there, there might actually be a chance in the universe that I don't see everything perfectly and that God is more wise than I am. But then we come to that place where we say, God, okay, finally I admit I'm a dummy. <laughs> I'm a dummy. I've made so many dumb decisions. I've tried so many times in my own way, and it continues to fail me. And so, Lord, even though I don't really feel like your word is right, I don't really feel like this is the way I ought to go, I submit. I submit. I submit because you you are righteous and your righteousness is righteous forever. It is right, right, righteous, righteousness, righteous forever. That's basically what this psalm is saying. He's all wise. He's all wise. So, fourth this morning, the fourth conviction. And the fourth conviction really flows out of the third one. The fourth conviction is that we find our life when we lose it. See, See, what happens is... You go all in. You go all in on God's ways. You say, all right, all right, Lord, I'm following you. And there's a submission there. There's a submission that comes with saying, all right, I'm no longer going to be in charge of trying to figure out my life. I'm no longer going to be in charge of trying to get what I think I deserve. And the psalmist continues there in, in 139 to 141. He says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, my passion, my enthusiasm, the word he uses here is zeal. My just pump pump uppedness for God's word has consumed me. All my chips are on the middle of the table. I'm all in with your word. But look where it's gotten him. He says in 141, I am small and despised. And this is what it will mean to cling to God's ways, to to believe that God's ways are right. This is what it will mean. It will mean that we lose our life in this world. That we will get passed by because other people were willing to lie and, and we weren't we will get taken advantage of because while this world tells us to push ahead and get vengeance when we've been wronged, instead we turn the other cheek. You may lose friends who distance themselves from you, not because you are actually judging them, but simply because they feel judged because you don't make the same decisions in life that they do. Clinging to God's ways as right means, inevitably, we will lose our life in this world. But here's the thing about being consumed. Uh, when you're consumed with something, you kind of forget about everything else. You kind of don't care anymore. I'm not sure if this still happens uh, with, uh, with the elderly folks but uh, I've seen this happen a lot with, with young folks. You know, how many times have I seen this you know, young guy who he's, you know, hangs, he has a group of buddies that he hangs out with, and then all of a sudden, the guy disappears. And a few weeks go by, and, and you run into this guy and you're like, "Hey man, where you been? You haven't been texting me back? You haven't answered my phone calls. What, "What's the deal?" And you find out that he met a new girl. And this guy is just infatuated with her. He's spending way too much money on this new girlfriend. He's spending way too much time with her. He, he can't think about anything else. He can't talk about anything else. He doesn't respond to anybody else's text message, phone calls, because he's all consumed with, with her. See, that's the thing. When you get consumed, everything else falls to the background. And the same kind of thing happens when we get consumed with the reality of God in His Word. The psalmist is, is looking, and, he, and he's, he's saying, God, Your word has totally consumed me and it has totally ruined my life. But I'm okay with that. In Mark chapter 8, 35 to 37, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, I think we hear Jesus say things like that and we think, what does that look like, you know? To lose your life, to take up your cross, deny yourself. Like, what does that actually look like? Well, I think it looks a lot like what. We see in Psalm 119, 139, 144, he, he, the psalmist says, My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. In other words, he's saying, I, I love your word. I've fallen in love with your word. It is consuming, me. It's dunking my whole life. Everything about me has been wrapped up in your word. In 141, he says, I'm small and despised. In other words, I lost my life. I got moved out to the margins. Nobody cares about me anymore. And then he, but he finishes with, yet. Yet I do not forget your precepts. God, following you has crushed my dreams. Following you has ruined my life. Following you has gotten me nowhere. And yet, yet, I'm not not leaving your word. I'm not leaving your precepts. I'm not leaving you. Why? Well, in, in verse 143, he says, trouble and anguish have found me out. Trouble and anguish have found me out. But your commandments are my delight when we're consumed with God, we're consumed with His Word, we actually find a joy, a a deep, heartfelt delight. When we become aligned with God, when we know that His favor is upon us, that His smile is upon us, everything else falls to the background. That we become more okay with being passed by because of our integrity. We become more okay with the fact that if Jesus lost friends, if Jesus was crucified, that it probably means that if we identify with him, we're going to lose friends too. We become more okay with it. But if we're going to establish our life upon his word, if we are going to cling to his word and not be conformed to the pattern of this world, we must set this conviction down that Jesus was not lying. He was not lying when he said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus was not lying when he said, you'll find your life when you lose it. You'll find your life when, because you held on to God's word, you became small and despised, and yet you are still filled with joy. That leads finally, fifth and finally today, to our fifth conviction that communion with God is worth fighting for communion with God is worth fighting for in James chapter 4 verse 4 James the brother of Jesus writes you adulterous people do you not know that friendship With the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's what James is doing James is painting the world for us as black and white. He's saying there is communion, friendship, fellowship with God, and there is communion, friendship, fellowship with the world. And he sets it up for us in in terms of a marriage. He says, if you've been married to God through Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus and you have become united to him, and then you go and flirt with the world, you go and entice the world, you go and go run back to the world, that is, he says, adultery. So he sets our life either with God or with the world in terms of a marriage, in terms of a relationship in terms of a bond of union. And so here's what that means. I, I know, I believe that you're here this morning. You are here this morning because you do not want to be conformed to the pattern of this world. You do not want to be conformed to a pattern that is contrary to God's design. You're here. You came here today because you want to know God. You want to know Him and you want your life to be conformed to Him. And what this what this? psalm is going to show us in just a second is that the best way to do that the best way to fight off the temptation of this world the best way to keep ourselves from being conformed to the pattern of fellowship of communion of relationship with the world is to stay as close to god as we possibly can is to live in communion with him is to wrap ourselves around this god in relationship to know him enjoy him and love him it's either or it's either or so there's three questions that this last stanza answers about communion with God, about fellowship with God, about friendship with God. Three questions. The first question that it answers is this, is this. What is the substance of communion with God? What's the substance? What is it? What is communion with God? Look at verses 145 to 148. He writes, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me. That I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. So, simply put, communion with God, communion with God is the ongoing communication that we experience with God as he speaks to us in his word and and then as we pour our heart back to him in prayer. Communion with God is simply having an ongoing communication with God where we, like the psalmist, say our hope is in your word. I am clinging to what you have to say to me and then I am pouring out my soul back to you. That is the communion with God that we desperately need. And I, I want you to see how he's fighting for it. How he's not just kind of floating along in his relationship with God. No, he's, he's getting up before the sun rises. He is setting aside sleep. He is desperate to have his life anchored to the Word of God and to enjoy fellowship with God. And so right from the beginning, let's just ask ourselves, have we established this conviction that communion with God is worth fighting for? It's worth prioritizing. It's worth setting other things aside. It's worth looking at those spare moments in the day and saying, there will always be more to do. There will be always something to fix. There will always be something we could be working on. Always. Always. But there's nothing more important than spending time with God. There's nothing more important. Is that a conviction of our hearts like we see in this psalmist? The second question this passage answers about communion with God is, what is the basis for communion with God? What is the ground? What, what, how is it that we have this relationship with God? Uh, verse 149 says, "Hear my voice according to my goodness." That's not what it says. Hear my voice. According to all the righteous things I did last week. That's not what it says. I could keep doing this. If, if you don't have the Bible in front of you, I'm making this up. No, he says, hear my voice according to your steadfast love. Oh, Lord, according to your justice, give me life. He, he, he doesn't go running into God's presence Based on his character, he doesn't go running into God's presence, putting his own resume out there, saying, God, you ought to be listening to me. Look. No, he runs into God's presence because of who God is. Uh, I think it's always been a good test of whether we really understand Christianity. Like, do we understand what it is? Do we understand the essence of Christianity? I think it's always been a good test to ask this question. Why is it that God should hear our prayers? Why is it that this infinite, eternal, holy God should listen to us? Why is that? And I think how we answer that question will help us know whether we understand Christianity or not. See, as we've been talking about the world, as we've been talking about lawlessness, as we've been talking about sin this morning... The Bible clearly teaches that all of us are lawbreakers. All of us have sinned against God. All of us have broken His commandments. And so what that means is that every single one of us is born into this world an enemy of God. That God should not hear our prayers. He shouldn't listen to people like us. He should not listen to people who have thrown a stiff arm in His face. And that brings us right to the heart of the gospel. See, this this verse... 149, it talks about God's love and it talks about God's justice. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. And the one place where God's love and God's justice come together, the one place where his love and his justice meet, is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That God shouldn't hear our prayers, God shouldn't be listening to us, we shouldn't expect that we have his ear. But then we see Jesus Christ die in the place of sinners. We see Jesus Christ stand in our place as the enemies of God that we are. And what we see Jesus Christ doing is we see him reconciling God and man. We see Jesus mending the relationship between God and man. We see Jesus opening up the way, as we sang about this morning, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus opening up the way for us to have communion with God again. And so when we talk about fighting for communion with God, we have to be really careful. What we're not talking about is fighting to earn the right to be in the presence of God. We're not talking about fighting to be good again so that we can then come to Him and and make our requests. That's not what it means to fight for communion with God. What it means to fight for communion with God is to set aside all the distractions, to, to, to set aside all those things that fill our hearts and our minds, and to run after Him. Here's a way to think of it. In my marriage, there's two reasons why the relationship between Allie and I gets messed up. Two reasons. One reason is I've done something stupid. I make a big mistake, and what's needed for me to fight for our marriage in that moment is for me to run to her and say, what can I do to make this right? How can I fix this? That for me to bring our marriage back together means me seeking reconciliation. And what I'm saying is our reconciliation with God, our ability to know that He will welcome us back, it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone it is what he did at the cross where the love of God was expressed and the justice of God was satisfied so that we can say like he says here, not, God, hear my voice according to my good deeds. Hear my voice because I'm trying so hard to fix it. Hear my voice according to your love and according to your justice. Hear my voice, you could say, according to the cross of Jesus Christ. But there's another reason that our relationship gets, gets funky. Sometimes it's not that I've really done anything wrong, it's just I've just gotten distracted. I've just gotten distant. I just haven't made the time. And so what it looks like for me to fight for our marriage, fight for communion with her, is not for me to seek forgiveness. It's not for me to try to mend or appease the relationship. What it looks like for me to seek communion, fixing our, fighting for our marriage, is for me to clear my schedule. Is for me to reprioritize her back where she ought to be. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about fighting for communion with God. It's not that we have to earn our way back in His presence. It's not that we have to fix all the bad things that we've done. It's that sometimes it's time to just clear the schedule. Sometimes it's time to just put everything else aside and say, God, you're it. And that leads to our third question that this passage answers about communion with God. Third What is the benefit of communion with God? What is the benefit of communion with God? Verses 150 to 152 say, They who draw near persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. The benefit of of communion with God is that God himself is near to us. That we have a closeness and intimacy with the one who made us. And guys, there there is nothing more important in this life, there is nothing more fulfilling in this life than the nearness of God. To have closeness with him to have fellowship, friendship with God. At this, at this time, I want to ask you to take your elements for communion that you have there in your seat. And uh, as you're doing that, I, I first just want to speak to those who, who might be here this morning, and you would say, you know that, that you haven't placed your faith in Jesus. Uh, you know that you haven't submitted to Christ and been born again. Um, these elements are actually not for you. Uh, this is a family meal for those who have put their faith in Jesus. But today, if you are here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus and, and you've been listening, and, and maybe you think back to when I mentioned that those who haven't trusted Christ are under the slavery of sin. And as I, as I began to talk about the way of the world that is conformed to the pattern contrary to God's design, maybe you would say, you know, that's me. I haven't submitted to God. I haven't ever wanted to live my life according to His ways. If if that's you this morning, although these elements are not for you, you are being offered something so much better. You are being offered the real Jesus. You are being offered eternal life through faith in the Son of God who is willing to give up His life for sinners like us. And so this morning... Instead of taking this, instead of taking the bread and the cup, I want you to consider taking Jesus Christ. Putting your trust in the real Savior. And then for those of us who would say, yes, we have put our faith in Jesus. We have, at one point in our life, bowed the knee to the Lord. We look at these elements, and we are reminded that though we could not have reconciled Ourselves to God, though we could have never made up for all the wrong things we had done, we have put our trust in a Savior who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That He laid down His life on the cross, He took His very sins upon us, He became Emmanuel, God with us, and He got so close to us that He was willing to take our very sins upon Himself. And He suffered and He died and then He rose from the dead. And that's what establishes our fellowship with God. That and that alone is what makes us be able to run to God's throne and say, God, hear my voice. Hear my voice according to your cross, according to what your son has done for me. And then here's the beauty, I think, of these elements. Um, You know, Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus knew that we would live in a world where there was immense pressure. He knew that there would be times when we would cave, when we wouldn't even hold up to our own convictions that we have. And so he gave us these elements, this bread and this cup, so that time after time after time after time, we might recommit ourselves to him. We might remember as we look at these elements that there is no life in fellowship with this world, but there is eternal life in fellowship with God. That that we might look at these elements and remember that fundamentally what challenges us, what draws us, what beckons us to get close to God is not our embarrassment or our guilt what draws us what woos us what beckons us to get close to god is god's love and mercy that it is jesus laying down his life on the cross that draws us to say i want to know this god this god who did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but this god who sent his son into the world to save the world and so this morning We take the bread and and, and we remember when Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Take it, drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. God, the pressures of this world, they're too much for us. We, we all know if we, if we try in our own strength, we just get swept away. We, we just conform. We fold. And so we're all falling down this morning and declaring to you that we need your help. We need your strength. Our only hope this morning is that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And God, this morning we long for fellowship with you, friendship with you, communion with, me, with you. And we ask that you would recommit us to yourself again. Lord, that we would resurrender, resubmit, rededicate our heart to the pursuit of knowing you. God, thank you for your goodness. Draw us to delight in your way in your word, in your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.